Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of PLP Talks, where we have interesting conversations with interesting people in the bike industry. I'm your host, Russ Roca. And if you're new to the series, this is actually the podcast version of our YouTube interview series. So if you like moving pictures with your word sounds, be sure to check out our YouTube channel as well. This podcast and the video series is supported by listeners like you. So if you want more interviews like this, be sure to check out how to support this podcast in the show notes. In this episode, we talk with one of the most energetic persons that we know in the bike industry, and that's Mr. Bobby Wintle. Not only does he own a bike shop in Stillwater, Oklahoma with his wife, Crystal, but he's also the race director of Land Run 100. If you're in the gravel scene, then you've probably heard of this ride. It's notorious for having just absolutely muddy conditions, and it just looks awesome. So we talk a lot about what a bike shop has to do these days to be successful. We also talk about the unexpected positive benefits of an event like Land Run 100 has on the local rural community. It's really fascinating stuff. I think you guys will enjoy this episode immensely. Bobby's just so much fun. So put your earbuds on, hop on your bike trainer or go out for a run or pretend like you're working at your desk. We won't tell and enjoy this episode. So thank you, Bobby, for joining us on the show. Absolutely, Russ. Thank, thank you and Laura both, man. Uh, I, I, yeah, like you said, we got to meet a while back and we just kind of stayed connected and it's been really cool to watch you guys grow and, and be a part of that. So dude, thank you for having me on. It's great. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally stoked. Um, like I think when we first met, you were telling me about the event Land Run 100 and at that time, I wasn't too keyed into the Midwestern uh, gravel uh, events. Can you talk about when it started and why you started it? Absolutely. So, um, you know, we had the shop for about a year, uh, about just a year at that time and at the end of 2012. And we knew before we moved to Oklahoma from Kansas, from, uh, you know, Emporia, Kansas, <laughs> where Dirty Kansas 200 is at. And we'd, we'd been involved with, with Dirty Kansas from about 2008 and on as either – uh, support crew or a volunteer or just cheering people on at the finish line and um, and while I was working at the bike shop at high gear there so we we had gotten a front row like front and center view into what was happening with with gravel and 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 absolutely with gravel in the midwest particularly and and how it was just growing from this one particular area and not a lot of events had been created yet mm-hmm. and so we were moving to, to open the shop, which we had been writing our business plan for at least three years. Um, we knew we wanted to put on an event and it just kept coming back to me that since we were moving to Oklahoma and that had already been decided that I knew there were tons of people coming from Dallas and Houston and Austin, Texas for DK that had nothing to train for DK in early spring. And so even though it's rolling the dice with weather and all that, which we can talk about that uh, <laughs> as we go, um, I thought, you know, if you're ready for 100 miles of, of uh, dirt roads in early March or mid-March, then you're well on your way to be ready for 200 miles of gravel or even just 100 DK, which is also really difficult because it's different. It's hotter. It's just different, more exposed than a lot of places. Mm-hmm. But if you were ready for those things um, that early in the season, then, yeah, then you had a great chance of finishing 200 miles because a double century in one day in less than, you know, 21 hours, which is their cutoff time, is is just 
at that time was a really crazy notion. Right. So that, that was really the beginning reason to put on a gravel event. And of course, uh, it's, it's taken on a full life of its own from this. Yeah. Do you have a sense of um, like what the timeline was when you got a sense that gravel in the Midwest was becoming a thing? I think we knew at 2008, oh, really? we saw, yeah, honestly, I know that sounds like, I mean, it's been almost 10 years ago, right? And, uh, and a lot of people are just getting into it and a lot of events are still just being created in, in the, the Northeast and in the Pacific Northwest and, um, in, in California and different places like that with new things like Randuro. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I think in 2008, we realized that this was a type of writing that, could open up the possibility for great, great adventure in a single day event or even a multi multi day event, which we're seeing a lot of now for everyone, not just the fast rider, not just the, you know, the, the, the racer or not just the person that rides every two days and, and trains and does all sorts of different things. But we saw that this was kind of a, a type of riding that broke down barriers. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know, I mean, just from seeing people that we never thought could finish 200 miles of gravel in, you know, 09 and, and 2010, our friends that were taking it up just that, you know, in a year, within a year, and then finishing the Dirty Kanza, we, we thought this is, this is a thing. And wherever there are dirt roads, um, there, there are courses that can be made and there are events that can be uh, produced for, for the people, for everyone. And mm -hmm. so that's, that's where we knew that no matter where we went, if dirt roads were in the area, that we should go and seek them out and see if, if we could come up with a, a course that was worthy of inviting our friends to or worthy of inviting people you know, at large on the internet and opening up as an actual event. So when we got to Oklahoma, it took us a while, actually. It took us a few months after we got to town before we even had time to get out of the shop and go for a ride. But man, once we finally did, and we realized just the endless hundreds and hundreds, I mean, over a thousand miles in our, in our area. I mean, honestly, you could put together a network of these roads that in a lot of, in a lot of places would be considered a B road, you know, mm -hmm. I think I've said this every time we've talked about our area and our roads. And so once I realized just the high quality of disgustingness that <laughs> are our roads and uh, just how much fun they are to ride and almost more mountain bike-esque like a B-road would be in, in per se Iowa or even in Kansas or, or Texas for that matter, I, I thought we have to invite people to do something. And that was where um, the, the original idea really came from. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think it is about a gravel event that, that seems so inviting as opposed to just like a pure like road event? I think there's a, a lot more... I really think it has to do originally with it being non-sanctioned, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, and this may be where we go with this conversation. We don't have to because it does get really political, and I'm really not a political <laughs> person. I don't know all the ins and outs of of um, of you know road road racing or even you know UCI mm -hmm. and USAC sanctioned mountain bike racing or cyclocross. I'm, I'm really not in tune with that whatsoever. So I think being able to kind of know and see who the promoter is or where the area is coming from or that it's connected to this group or maybe a bike shop here. I think that that really breaks down a lot of barriers for people instead of it being, you know, a series race or, you know, some sort of team event or, you know, like a, a crit is just really intimidating to a lot of people that 
don't know if they're a good enough bike handler to be, mm-hmm. you know, in a group of people. And then, uh, once you take away all the things that have been added into that type of racing, you're left with just, can I do this event? Can I finish this course that's been created? And can I do it in the allotted amount of time? Or even if there is a cutoff finish time or whatever, I think that gravel has been able to successfully for over these last, you know, 13 years, which trans Iowa is kind of the, the, you know, our, our benchmark for like <laughs> Midwest gravel, this is where it was born from. And DK would even uh, admit, admit that as well, that they were one of the, they, you know, trans Iowa was their first real inspiration to do their event. And so mm-hmm. I would say trans Iowa then DK and then were the two that really inspired us. Mm-hmm. But I think it, it just takes away a level of, of intimidation that says, well, I, this is actually just about me and my bike and these country roads. And I'm not necessarily out here to beat anyone else except for the course itself and to see if I'm worthy and made of it. So I really think that's where gravel is way more inviting than, than say, you know, worried about the podium or the money or the series event mm-hmm. where USAC type stuff or UCI mm-hmm. events really focus on that. And, and that's not what gravel is about in my opinion. Right. How do you, um, how do you see gravel events changing now that it's been like over a decade that they've been happening? Like how have they matured, metamorphosized, branched out? Absolutely. So, I mean, I think we're seeing, you know, more so with, uh, you know, Rebecca's private Idaho and Grinduro both being, um, stage style races that are mixing up just instead of just having a course and just having a one day event, you know, like we're seeing some multiple multi-stage day races where, you know, your times are accumulated from certain days, which is, you know, really similar to something like, uh, uh, oh, the, the, I think it's a, in Pennsylvania, there's the three day mountain bike race. I uh, mm-hmm. can't remember the name of it, but the Tran, Tran, Transylvania Epic or something like right. that. And yeah. there, there's some things like that that have already been happening in the mountain bike world. It's, of course, tons of road races or multi-day in the pro level side of things. So it's making it more worthwhile for people to come and spend the money to stay and pay for the registration fees and be a part of it because they're getting multiple days to ride the bike. And I think that's super cool. I'm actually really, <laughs> really intrigued by what the future of gravel looks like with multi-day events because I'm so in love with bikepacking too. Mm-hmm. And I really think that's something else that we should talk about is that I really see bikepacking and non-competitive events or, um, you know, adventures per se, or just trips that are being put together. Um, that I really see that almost as a succession to, to these one day gravel epic races, you know, which I'd love to put our, our race in there or the, the Barry, the Barry Roubaix mm-hmm. up in Michigan or, um, you know, the, uh, crusher and the tusher in Utah, dirty Kansas, trans Iowa, you know, so instead of just a one day event, well, trans Iowa isn't a one day event. <laughs> I, I see multi-day longer and then maybe some less, uh, competitive centric things becoming more popular as we get more saturated with the one day things. Because I think too, over the last 10 years, I mean, obviously we've seen only a handful of events, four five, six. And now in the Midwest, particularly if you look at ridinggravel.com, there's something every single weekend, if not multiple events every weekend, somewhere in the country. Wow. Yeah. And it's, it's unbelievable. It's hard to pick and choose. So I think sheer numbers of people being interested in gravel and uh, in the events themselves it has caused a lot of change too. 
that, you know, the demand has become much bigger. And so therefore the production of each event has to figure out how Mm -hmm. to deal with that demand. So how do we deal with it? What do we do? Do we add, you know, more distances? Do we add, uh, you know, more people? Do we just allow it to grow to a monumental size? Do we whittle it down and make it smaller and more intimate like we wanted it eventually? So we've grown from in the last five years. So this will be our sixth event coming up this year. We've grown from 121 riders the first year with no cap on registration. And this year we sold out in 36 hours, almost 1,500 spots. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, with all that growth, it demands a lot more work and a lot more um, planning on our end and and, and structure. And we've got to be really confident that we can handle that many people and that we can – give each person a really unique experience when they come because that's what I care about the most is that relationships are built experiences are had that are going to last a lifetime and that each and every person comes and feels like they got what they paid for and then hopefully much much more and they've got to push themselves so yeah uh I hope I answered that question properly (laughs) I have a lot to say about it because it's changed so much even just for us in the last five years but uh I'm so excited that people have have really embraced it. Yeah. I think people from pros to, to beginners all across the, the landscape of cycling are embracing gravel. And so that's causing a big change. Yeah. Um, you were talking about I'm, I'm really intrigued about the uh, multi-day event format, uh, particularly like the bike packing ones. We recently got a chance to do the ramble ride. And yes. uh, that was that was just so cool. Because it had elements of that um, satisfaction of like self-sufficiency because you're carrying your stuff. But yes. there's a beer garden at the end of each each day. That's so, so cool. So it was like this perfect mix of uh, some support. So there's a bit of a safety net if you're completely new. But yep. I mean, the, the courses were, were hard. I mean, they call it a ramble, but it, it was not a ramble. <laughs> it beat oh, you yeah. up. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of fascinated about how that's going to evolve. Because in our other work around like uh, bicycle tourism... You know, we've presented at the conference a lot, and uh, what we hear from like just pure road style events is registrations uh, coming down. There's not as much interest, sure. um, but a lot of events, road, pure road events, haven't quite adapted um, to uh, to gravel rides either. For it's not something that they do, or right. kind of like permitting is a little bit different because it goes through national forests or different types of like. Uh, land yep. ownership. So there's some interesting challenges to be overcome. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, we we luckily don't have to deal with any sort of permitting like that, except for in towns. You know, we do always work with a we always work with a halfway town. So we've we've changed it every two years. We've changed our course every two years, but always repeated it after the first year, the same course. Um, so last, two years ago, we were with Perry, Oklahoma, and they welcomed us with open arms. I mean, very minimal paperwork, very minimal um, asks for us on, on paying for, for anything. Really, they paid for porta potties for us. They had a band um, at the halfway point. They let us use electrical and water for free, which was so cool. And uh, unfortunately, because the weather's been so bad four out of the five years at our event, a lot of people really don't hang out uh, at the halfway point. And even so, at our finish line down in downtown Stillwater, where we're at. And so, yeah, we're, we're hoping for good weather. But uh, <laughs> the 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 halfway point towns have been so, so welcoming. And I just wanted to make sure that I talked about that because that's something that I feel, um, not a lot of events do. Um, a lot of events will have a course, but it'll just kind of be 
in a certain area and not really impact another local community. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we love downtowns and we love old architecture and we, we love the event as itself telling a story. And so, you know, the, the course itself goes through some very beautiful old roads that have been around for so long. And then we've been able to partner with some private landowners the last three years. This will be the fourth year with, that we've been working with private landowners and had to get gain access and build a relationship and from nothing, you know, they have no idea about this type of cycling or cycling in general. Right. And uh, so, yeah, we've gone through the Buckhorn Cattle Company uh, the, the last, this will be the second year we've gone through and no one had ever ridden a bike through their private tunnel that goes underneath I-35 and then into their Longhorn cattle ranch and around and then out on the other side. And so the, the fact that, you know, people have been receptive to us, not just the halfway point towns, but even just local landowners like, like the Buckhorn Cattle Company has been so much fun. So I, I really encourage if, if you're thinking about doing a event or you already have one, I really encourage you to, to think outside the box and go for those things that take way more time than, than you think they should because they're worth <laughs> way, way more than you could possibly imagine. It probably took us two, two and a half weeks to nail down a meeting with the people that own the, the Buckhorn Cattle Company and then multiple visits to make sure that everyone's on the same page and you know working with their 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 ranch hands and all sorts of different things so if if there is like a national forest permit or people that you've got to to talk with and work through on that type of thing just do it it's it will make your event ex like just exponentially more memorable for each person that comes to to do it so yeah it's it's worth it it's cool yeah do you think you know by working with smaller local communities or um kind of unlikely uh, private landowners, do you think it helps change the hearts and minds of some people that don't write about cycling? I think so, definitely. Um, so, I mean, of course, on the dirt roads, and one of the main reasons I ride dirt roads is because traffic is so much less, right? Uh, I mean, we we can barely ride on paved roads around here because um, we're a college town, and there's an influx of however many thousand new students every year. And so, like, we're never going to the only, I'm not going to say never, but if we were to change that mentality of new people moving to, to town, you know, it, it's, it's going to, that would take a decade probably or, or more. And it may never happen because these people are coming from all over the place. And for them to say, oh, Stillwater is a cycling destination community, you know, we're going to respect that or also participate with that. We may never, may never get there, but there's only a select few people that live on these dirt roads in every county, you know, surrounding Stillwater and Payne County. So we've already seen multiple people come in the shop in the district and say, Hey, like, you know, we see you, we know that your route came by these last two years and we set up and we cheered people on and we watched the riders and it was the coolest thing we've been a part of in X amount of years, you know? So yeah, like we, uh, we truly think that we've made an impact locally and um, I know Dirty Kansas the same way. I mean, so many people are lining the gravel roads now up there. I mean, because it's such a huge national event that would have never, ever known about cycling mm-hmm. um, if it hadn't been for that event. So, yeah, I think that's uh, – it's fun because we're, we're entering into a culture that's very, very, very different. Right. Yeah, that's, that's one thing, like, I've been super always, like, fascinated about um, you know, kind of gravel riding and bikepacking – um, it's kind of a, a sideways form of bike advocacy in a way, cause it helps build yeah. empathy and it's advocacy in a way that, you know, tra- traditional bike adv- advocacy can't reach. 
you know, because there's not the density right. for protected bike lanes or, you know, that stuff isn't necessary. But how do you still, you know, bridge that kind of urban-rural divide and, and talk bikes on, on some kind of level, you know? Right. And I think, I think just the presence of us being there tells the story that it needs to tell because it's a slower pace, right? I mean, it's a slower pace on, on the dirt roads of life all in general. And so when they see us, they really see us as a human. Mm-hmm. They see us as a person on a bike and not as someone who's in the way because we're really not in the way. They can pass. They can stop. They can say hi. Um, and they do a lot of times. You, you, I mean, it's amazing. People stop and they just say, well, what, what are you doing out here if they don't? And then if they do know, they'll, they'll strike up a conversation about whatever cousin in whatever state is a cyclist. And right. <laughs> it's just pretty cool. Pretty cool. Another thing about the bikepacking thing that um, I, I started this year, I um, actually came to, to uh, Oregon uh, again with 10, 10 different people, uh, a couple of our mechanics at the shop. Um, my father-in-law came, a few customers, and then a few people from the industry, from Chris King and from uh, – I had another another person from Co-Motion Cycles come, and I put out there on my Unlearned Pavement site just, I'm going to pick a route, and the route I picked was the Steens Mountain Loop. So four days of riding, about 78 to 80 miles a day around Steens Mountain in southeast Oregon, and we climbed to the top on the last day and then back into French Glen, Oregon. And um, the idea was to do it fully self-supported, all bikepacking, camping at campsites, hot springs, you know, you name it. But it was uh, in no way like no registration, no fees at all. I was basically just kind of the guide and putting it all together. Um, I had a lot of help with uh, with all the logistics from uh, my friend Dave, David Markman that lives up in um, – he's Bikepacking David on mm-hmm. Instagram. He's a Tour Divide finisher as well. And so anyway, he helped me with a bunch of like planning and logistics of that. And then we all met – a bunch of us met in Stillwater. We drove out. Some others came from Portland and from Eugene, and uh, it, it was it was so cool. It was so cool to be able to say, "Hey, we're going to do this route. It's not an event. We're going to do it together and stick together. We have certain time frames for each day. And if you've never done anything like this before, you know, like there are multiple people that have, and and we can help each other learn. So uh, we're going to do this again. It was it was. It was a huge learning process for me. Uh, we, we actually had some some major mechanicals the first day in forty miles. I oh, think so. We had to. We got to a restaurant and we had to go. We had to borrow the car of the lady that worked the restaurant to go back and get our van and use a support van for the next three days. So, <laughs> I was a little bit bummed at first, but then I was like, you know, maybe this was the way it should have been from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, because we are bringing out some ultra ultra beginners. All right. And uh, a few of them still did it fully, fully self-contained and, uh, you know, definitely drank some beers out of the van <laughs> at, at the campsite. But, but besides that, we're pretty much self-contained. And uh, we're going to do this again in in, um, in the fall in New Mexico. So, okay. I mean, I'll have it all out um, and sharing it through our district bicycles and uh, my Unlearned Pavement stuff on Instagram. We'll be sharing all that. So we just want to bring as many people as possible that are interested in something like this mm-hmm. that have either done it a million times or never before. And the whole idea is to go to a place that most of us have never been to. And we want to go to the Santa Fe area and, uh, find a really great route there. Mm-hmm. And then every year just pick somewhere different do three to four days. It's going to be. Yeah. And chatting with, uh, uh, Whitney, that, um, the idea that, um, you know, like the big gap between, someone buying all the gear and actually doing it uh, isn't from just 
you know, the gear purchase, it's actually like the knowledge and having people to do it. And uh, there seems like this vacuum that needs to be filled with education and just kind of a, a group of a group experience of some sort. I totally agree. I mean, we, we had so much extra gear that we were all passing around and we were all sharing. Yeah. I mean, you know, between tents and, and frame bags and water filters and, you know, you name it. Like we, we really, we did that. We, it was a full on communal thing. It was like, Hey, I don't have this. I don't have this. And we just communicated as we could through Facebook and, and Instagram and we made it happen. So yeah. anyway, I, th I think that just goes back to our conversation about multi-day events, you know, and uh, a little bit of support here and there because, you know, the, th the thing that I'm learning the most is that even though I think I've thought through all of the event planning and all the things, there's going to be, I have to have at least one, if not two backup plans. Right. Yeah. So I'm working on, on, you know, humbling myself to realize those things. Uh, you're kind of unique in that you, uh, you know, you run uh, Land Run, but you also have a bike shop. Uh, so you have kind of that uh, IBD uh, uh, perspective. What do you think uh, bike shops can do to kind of help enable uh, people's bike adventures? So I'm kind of, it's kind of weird. I'm not like a super structured person. My wife <laughs> is she's amazing. Crystal really runs the bike shop side of things. Uh, my my full-on role there at this point now honestly is doing a lot of custom builds and just keeping the keeping the vibe alive because as things grow and get older you know people come in people go out and so I think that's the number one thing that bike shops struggle with is is constantly being the source of the stoke and it's really hard it's, <laughs> it is like I want to be so honest mm -hmm. about this that for the first three or four years, it wasn't hard. I mean, it's very, it comes really natural to me and it doesn't come natural to a lot of people to, to really want to be excited about a certain thing or working really hard for something that didn't exist before. But like, that's kind of my, that's my vibe. Like we mm -hmm. started the bike shop from scratch. We started the race from scratch. You know, we, we, we want to create things that didn't exist before. And I think a lot of bike shops see themselves as a place of service and a place of sales and they kind of judge themselves based upon how well they're doing those two things. And they're really, really missing out on the people aspect. And I know it's being talked about adventure and community, I think are the two biggest things that are being talked about in marketing today, like togetherness and connectedness and experience and adventure and how, and it's incredible because I truly believe salsa cycles with adventure by bike, like started this whole thing. Right. Like it's, un it's unbelievable. It's, it's so cool. And they're, they're really, really like permeating every single market, whether it's vehicles or food or, mm -hmm. you know, hiking, biking, you know, you name it, any of the outdoor industries, of course, have really latched onto this idea of adventure, but we cannot grow this without connection and relationship. And so what we do at the shop, I mean, we, it's as simple as this. It's, it's really hard and really taxing on your social and emotional well-being and your soul because you're giving so much all the time. But we have a, you know, we have a couch at the shop. It's, it's, it's right by the service area. It's not, just a, it's not just an added piece. There's no TV. We've got no TVs in the shop. It's a really, really big decision that we've made and people have asked for them for like two years. They're like, whoa, I know you have a TV in here so we can 
watch the tour, or we can do this, or we can do that. And I said, because if we had that, number one, like you would obviously probably watch it, but then like it would be the first source of your time and your effort instead of people. Mm-hmm. And so right at the, right there where we've got the couch and a chair, we've got the bar and we built a bar for people to sit at to watch us, you know, watch them work on our bikes or watch us work on their bikes. So it's truly almost as simple as that. But then you have to actually care. Mm-hmm. You have to actually want to talk to these people and know who they are, what they want to do with their bike what they're doing at work, what's going on with their family, where they're going for the holidays, you know, like, um, it, it's, it's a lot of non sales and service related work mm-hmm. and people don't see it as work. And a lot of people don't see it as, as something that's beneficial. They're like, well, I sold them their bike and it works perfect. And we've got this one group ride, but honestly at this day and age, it's not enough. It's not enough to keep people's attention and it's not enough to keep them feeling like they're a worthy person in your area. Mm-hmm. So, um, we're kind of lucky because we're, we're isolated. Stillwater really isn't connected or a suburb of another place. You know, Oklahoma city is an hour from us. Tulsa is an hour and 15 minutes from us. So we're kind of secluded. We've got all these amazing dirt roads that we can ride together and, uh, there's only us and one other bike shop in town. And so it's, it, we've been able to really give people a place to seriously call their own. Like it's right. district is districts, a synonym for community. And that's why we picked the name for the bike <clears throat> shop because mm-hmm. we care about people more than we care about bikes or sales or anything else. But as we're six years in, I will say that right now today, it's, it's harder than ever to stay on that pulse and on that mm-hmm. excitement level to keep people riding their bikes for me or crystal or someone from the shop to be at every group ride, which we have three every week all year. And, uh, and we do a social every Friday at five where everyone brings a beer or brings something to drink and we hang out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that it gets tiring. I'm not going to lie. It's not, it comes very <laughs> easy to me, but it, but it's still like, there's just so much that goes in with that. People are people. And right. it's like, it's stressful. <laughs> I think bike shops need to look at, what they're doing to truly penetrate relationship, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and not just act like it or say they are, but actually, what are they actually doing? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting times. Cause I feel like, um, you know, lots, it sounds like the bike industry is in dire straits <laughs> or some companies, lots yeah. of, lots of shops are closing and, um, kind of like the, the value proposition of a bike shop has changed. You know, you can't just be, uh, you know, a salesman or purveyor of goods, you know, there's the internet, there's price, you know, transparency, you know, if someone is shopping purely on price, there's no reason to go to the bike shop. So there's gotta be some added value and, um, exactly. and it could be community, um, you know, kind of the educational component. I saw that, uh, on your Instagram, you did kind of a tour of like really interesting bike shops. You went to, uh, with Peddler's Fork. Yeah. Uh, did you make it to Topanga, Topanga Creek? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'm really good friends with Chris there. And, uh, and with Jay Barre, who was working there for, for quite a while. And, uh, so I've been to Topanga twice now, actually. And it's, it's a magical place, dude. Yeah. When I, when I think of like the, you know, the bike shops that I really like that if, you know, I'm going to start dropping some dollars, I think of those shops that have engendered, you know, some other kind of social aspect or community aspect first rather than, than, than purely price. Yeah. And, like, and I think, you know, I think something that's also the, that's contributed to just us being able to kind of, you know, weather this, this climate of 
and I hate to talk about it because, you know, I feel like the more we talk about it, the more power we give it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The the internet and and like the the dying of bike shops in general because of whatever, you know, X, Y, and Z. But, you know, I think our race too has given us um, some some credibility. Land Run's given us uh, some some clout that people trust us, that we know what we're talking about because we do – put on, you know, what we like to think a pretty, pretty stellar event. And, and they're coming here. We've got 36 states this year and 11 people from Canada. It's crazy. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, anyway, so like we've been able to make connections and relationships with people all over the country and, and, you know, sell, sell bikes to them or, or talk them through a build with maybe their local shop too, which we, we love to do. Um, I helped a guy, he saw something, a blog post on our district bicycles website. Um, about a certain fork on the new karate monkey and he wanted to talk all about it. And I was like, dude, where are you from? He's like, oh, I'm from Chicago. And I just called the shop and I'm like, well, you, you really need to go visit Bailey Newbury at Comrade Cycles in Chicago and he's going to totally take care of you. I don't know if the guy went or not, but, but hopefully he did, you know, so it's, it's cool. I, I love to, to, to push people to their local space. I, I don't want to gobble up everyone's, um, you know, the, their business and I don't, really truly want to open any sort of online store I, I want people to to make a relationship with us trust us and then and then we pr- we provide them with whatever it is that they're they're asking for and, and and hoping for so yeah man I don't know it's a it's a crazy time there's a lot of stuff going on we, we've truly we've truly buckled down and stuck with the certain brands that we know that we do well with mm-hmm. and, and uh, what we know we do well um, with as a bike shop. And so, yeah, we, I think shops just have to realize that, you know, blaming it on this or blaming it on that is, is not the answer. It's not at all. It's like, well, what, what are you truly passionate about? And if people aren't one of those things, how can you get yourself to be passionate about people? Because people are the, they're, they're the ones buying the product, mm-hmm. you know, just like you said, if you're, if you're, uh, you know, shopping on price, there's no reason to go to the bike shop unless you know a person that either has more information to give you than you already have or can find on the internet or that will, will give you an experience unlike any other at, at an IBD or, you know, at a, at a retail store. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I see that in the outdoor industry. I see it, I see it everywhere. You've got to build relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, um, uh, social media for a bit. Um, cause you tend to use it really well. How has it changed? Like how you approach like marketing land run or, you know, promoting the bike shop and stuff. Oh man. So, you know, I want to do more with, there's only f- five of us that work at the bike shop and we just hired, um, Sally Asher for, uh, event. She's basically the event manager for land run. Now I just, I have to have help cause I can't, be at the shop and run the event all at the same time. So I finally hired someone after six years, which is crazy, but it's awesome. And I'm so pumped about it. So she's helping with marketing and, and, you know, all sorts of different things, but the social media aspect of it, I would, I would love to be able to do more of the bike packing things that I've done with unlearned pavement through the bike shop specifically, because obviously that's where you buy the product from. But we, we just want to tell the stories of what we're doing and what our customers are doing and then also of, of what can be done with the product that you may already have. And so I feel like instead of talking about specific product, we're just letting the stories and the pictures tell themselves. And also continually trying to go out and do crazy <laughs> stuff that people haven't heard of yet. So I, I went and did the Trans North Georgia, the TNGA race in Georgia in August. 
It's 360 miles, 355 miles of mountain bike trail, gravel pavement, you name it, self-supported bikepacking race. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I wanted to, you know, obviously use social media as much as I could, but I really couldn't use it that much. During <laughs> the race. But, uh, things like that, I want to, I want to try and capture really well and show people that, Hey, these things are out there and you're capable of doing it. And I think that's what we try and do throughout all the social media, whether it's land run district or unlearned pavement is like, stop telling yourself that you're not capable because you are and whatever product you have, whatever bike you've got, whatever gear you have, it's okay. You can use that to do X, Y, and Z gravel ride or a, a camp out. So yeah, we, we just really try and tell like the story of, of the person is worthy of doing these things and you don't have to know all the answers. Mm-hmm. So I think coming at social media as a bike shop with really product heavy specific stuff really scares a lot of people away and, and turns them off. But if it's people centric, adventure centric and hey, this is happening, you should do it too. I think that's what's caused us to be really, really successful. Right, right. Do you think um, the do you think the bike industry has a problem like communicating with the beginners? One hundred percent. Always has and maybe unfortunately will for the foreseeable future. And that's what we like built ourselves on is that it's okay that you don't know. Like there was a time that we didn't know. And, uh, you know, I, I get people to sign up for land run all the time who are not prepared, who are in no way ready <laughs> to take on a hundred miles, especially if they have to hike seven to eight miles in the mud carrying their bike. But you know what, in a year or two, they're ready and, and they, or, or even six months, they, they figure it out. If they're passionate enough to, to want to keep moving, they are. And a lot of bike shops, man, I still hear it every day. I still hear it. I walked into that shop. They didn't give me the time of day because I didn't look the part. They didn't, you know, explain this to me very well. I don't understand what this does or what this does. And a lot of times, you know, we just try and bring it way, way down to the basics. And I, you know, it's crazy because we're juggling all these things at once. Like we're, you know, we're doing a lot of sales with Moots now. And with Moots, it's like, you know, you know, they're, they're one of the most premier brands in the industry, definitely in the United States. And so like we're dealing with customers that do know like the gram weight detail of each <laughs> thing that's happening on the bike down to the bar tape. But then we're also working with a, you know, a brand new student that just got to town to, to get a townie or whatever. And so like we want to be just as excited for the person getting a $350 FX from Trek as we are for a person that may be spending, you know, 12 to $14,000 on a moots, which is pretty easy to do these days, actually. <laughs> uh, so yeah, man, it's, it, like I said, it's, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. And, but it, is it worth it? Yes, totally. Because you get to see the new bike day photos that we put up for people. There, there's no like tier of who gets a new bike day photo at district on Instagram. It's anybody that lets us take their photo. Yeah. And most people are like pumped about it. We had a guy drive up with his wife from Dallas. Oh, wow to get a cutthroat from us. And he didn't say anything while he's getting a bike. We're getting him fit. And then all of a sudden he's like, all right, I'm ready for my new bike day photo. We brought props. <laughs> <laughs> you brought your own props. He's like, yeah, yeah. So he, he had like birthday hats. It was his birthday. Oh dude, it was so cool. So, I mean, 
Yeah, you know, it's it's really small things like that that kind of engender me the bike shops. Like uh, Topanga does that too. Like the you know. Yes. So it's just it's so simple. That's really where we got it from. You know, like we got it from from them from a long time ago. Whenever they first hit it hard with salsa, and they, I mean, I can't even count how many salsa vias or el mariachis they had on <laughs> the back porch by that tree with the sign. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is yeah, this is what it's about. They understand. <laughs> it's so cool. Yeah, it's it's so simple, but it's also like so memorable. And I think it for for me as a consumer, like it's more impactful than like when I see an ad in the local paper, you know. So. Absolutely, absolutely. I th- thank you, man. Like like I said, people centric, like all the way. Whether it's from an event standpoint or a retail standpoint, or just like you know trying to to talk about whatever it is that event that I'm going to do next or or have done in the past or that I'm you know, like visiting a bike shop or whatever. I, I want to tell a story to people. Like I'm not, you know, bikes always win on Instagram, right? Like in our <laughs> world, like bikes always get the most likes. I love that hashtag, the no bikes, no, no likes. likes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. But but sometimes I get really surprised and people people remember the, the stories. They remember the people and it changes them. It really does. So social media truly at the core of it it needs to be that it needs to be social. Uh, otherwise it's, it, it will eventually, you know, lose its luster if mm-hmm. we don't focus on people. And I think that's what's happening in, in the brick and mortar retail as well. You know, same thing. Like I remember, you know, there was a shoe store in my hometown in Parsons, Kansas, where we're from. And it was James shoes, you know, and it's like, i wanted to go there to see that person to fit my shoes, you know, and now it's like, that's just not a thing anymore. And it makes me wonder if that even exists. Uh, but it's, it is an impactful thing. It lasted a lifetime. You knew who you, you were going to see when you went to that place. You knew that they cared about mm-hmm. your story. You know, same thing with my barber when I was a kid, <laughs> they're still there. You know, the guys are in their seventies now. And, and like, I, I want to talk to them. I want to go see my old eye doctor because like he provided not just a service, but a relationship. Right. And can't drive that home enough. I just can't. Yeah, that that was actually one of the um, kind of the reasons we we started this video series a while back when we were in Portland called a shop visit, uh, mm-hmm. where we go to bike shops and interview the owner. Um, because I think that's what people want to that's that's who people want to meet and and talk to. Because shops, uh, it seems like are a lot of them tend to be a reflection of the owner's own interests. So to get to talk to that person and hear them, you know. Talk about why they started the shop, why they like it, why a person should come, um, and really show people that yes, there's a brick and mortar, but there's there's humans <laughs> working inside. Right. You know. Yes, <laughs> they're living, breathing. It's totally true. Yeah, and see that that goes back to the social media thing for me too, man. Um, like you guys and the bike fishing, and just you being out there doing it and not necessarily making it look really, really difficult. I think has inspired a lot of people. Me in particular, I've got a fly rod now. I haven't used, I haven't used it yet. I can 100% uh, contribute that to you. And, and the fact that you guys are out there and you're doing it and you're making it look incredibly fun and you're making it look like do, super doable. So, man, thank you for that, number one. And number two, I think, I think that's, a, that's a really good way for people to approach uh, telling their story and then also getting other people excited about it. Just, yeah, that's, it's cool. cool. Yeah, we should come out to Montana. Well, I think this is a good place to end. Um, thanks again, Bobby, for uh, joining us today. And uh, if you guys like this video, don't forget to like, share, subscribe. If you have 
suggestions for future guests, uh, leave those in the comments below. If you have questions for Bobby, leave those in the comments below. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks again, Bobby. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for us. Great talking with you. I want to thank Bobby again for being a guest on PLP Talks. And if you guys enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give it five stars and a positive review on iTunes. Yes, it's a shameless plug. But let's blow up the internets. Let's spread the bike love, people. And I'll talk to you next time.